cannot remain silent as our nation engages in one of history's most cruel and senseless wars. America must continue to have, during these days of human travail, a company of creative dissenters. We need them because the thunder of their fearless voices will be the only sound stronger than the blasts of bombs and the clamor of war hysteria. Those of us who love peace must organize effectively as the war hawks. As they spread the propaganda of war, we must spread the propaganda of peace. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. drew fierce criticism when he spoke out against the Vietnam War in 1967. The casualties of war, he said, included not only life, but the moral principles of the nation. Principles that once inspired an oppressed people living under tyranny to fight for the right to self-govern. The war, he argued, was now part of an American imperial agenda, at odds with the vision of a great society. In that speech, one line would inspire the name of a new organization seeking to oppose another war 35 years later. The past is prophetic in asserting loudly that wars make poor chisels for carving out peaceful tomorrows. That's Terry Green reading the quote that became the tagline of an organization September 11th Families for Peaceful Tomorrows. We're a group of around 250 9-11 family members who came together originally in February of 2002 with a mission to turn our grief into actions for peace and justice in opposition to the concept of going to war, first in Afghanistan, then in Iraq, as a response to 9-11. I'm Ambreen Khan, and this week on Inspired, we continue our special series on reflections two decades after the events of 9-11. In this installment, why family members organized a network to promote peace and prevent the memory of their loved ones from being manipulated to justify war and violence. Later in this episode, we'll hear from one of the original organizers, Phyllis Rodriguez, describing how family members found each other across the country and the transformative journey she had, sharing her story that was eventually made into an award-winning documentary film, In Our Son's Name. But we begin with Terry Green. I spoke to her at her home in Boston on September 10th. She works full-time in public health but dedicates the rest of her hours to supporting a volunteer organization that gives her an outlet and a way to honor her older half-brother, Donald Freeman. He died on United Airlines Flight 93 at the age of 52. His name is Donald Freeman Green, or Donnie, or Bozo, if you were growing up with him. He was just the most lovely man. We were asked by the filmmakers of United Flight 93, what he was like. And 
my sister-in-law, his wife, said, oh, he was a lot like Hugh Grant. People were always mistaking him for Hugh Grant. And I was like, he's a lot like Dick Van Dyke in, back in Mary Poppins. <laughs> he was very playful and joyous and thoughtful and smart and caring. And he loved his wife and his two children so incredibly much. And in fact, his son, Charlie, made a wonderful video about him for this year's commemoration. You know, not as a tribute from outside about 9-11 at all, but just who he was. What's special about this day, Dad? Today is Father's Day for me. We're going to let the rest of the world see how lucky we are. Good morning, Claudette. Good morning. This is the day we're going to have a baby. It's pretty special to watch the way my parents captured the morning of my birth. Hi. And what do we have here? We have... Baby. You can hear it in their voice, both how much they loved each other and also how excited they were to start a family of their own. Charlie's got the... Nicest daddy in the world. Phone's ringing. Thankfully, that camcorder from the 90s captured so many of the most important moments from my childhood. Hi! From births and birthdays to holidays and family reunions. But that camcorder also captured the small moments. Those everyday occurrences that took on new meaning after my dad passed away just after my 10th birthday. We're seeing some bonding with Daddy. Videos that captured his personality in a way that photos never could and have kept our bond alive in my memory since. So we just played a clip of Charlie there narrating over a home movie, and you can see the kind of images of the Davis birth. And the day his parents brought him home, they were really cute and fun-loving, and you kind of get a sense of of what his parents were like, what Donald was like. And and you can hear how much those those videos hold for him, how important they are. Terry, how old was Charlie when he lost his dad? Charlie was 10. His sister Jody and my son Ari uh, were around the same age. Um, Charlie had just turned 10 in, in end of August, and... We had just been down to visit them for Charlie's birthday. And Jody and Ari were uh, around six. We just had a lot of fun with their family. My brother's war, he worked for a firm my dad started, which is called Safe Flight Instrument Corporation, which ironically um, was dedicated to flight safety and makes safety instruments, starting with stall warning in the 40s to wind shear and and all sorts of instruments. He also volunteered for the Angel Network, which flew cancer patients um, for free on private corporate jets so they wouldn't be exposed to people's germs uh, as they fly to treatments. In terms of family, whenever you called, even though he was so busy running this company, he he would just stop and talk to you. I have no idea how he did it. He just would really spend the time and he would always go on about 
how wonderful his kids were and his wife. He, he just loved them to, to bits. Were there a set of deeply held beliefs that you tapped into or that inspired or mm-hmm. informed the way that you processed what you and your family have gone through? Yes. Yes, in, in a broad sense of belief and a personal sense of belief. Donnie is a half-brother because his father died young of cancer in his 40s. And then his mother married my dad and, and had me. And my mother died young of cancer. How my mother handled her losses, how our whole family handled losing loved ones at early ages is part of what informs my reaction because I do know how much we still live with people we love as an essential essence of our being. Hmm. In terms of organized faith, our family is is Jewish by ethnicity, culture, but we're not practicing growing up. But I still think a lot of the traditions, the Jewish traditions, the ethics of service, um, remembrance, I think a lot of that also plays a part in, a, in my life. And um, I've come to learn rituals, which I've enjoyed. We just had my nephew and my nephew's wife, Heather, and their daughter and his son for Rosh Hashanah. And we, our, my son Ari had a lovely lifelong honey collection mm. that he's got. And so we were able to celebrate with apple slices and honey. And, and he made his signature hot chocolate that he spikes <laughs> <laughs> with Amaretto. But you know, it's just such a heartwarming thing to to bring in this time of year with celebrating the apples and uh, a chance to look back at your year and start afresh and and connect with families and others. Um, it's it's very important. I think my family had. I know from my father, he had chosen not to live with formal religion because coming out of the out of the Holocaust, World War II just felt like um, religion seemed like something that was was not a, a really strong place uh, to be in and um, assurance of a future that was protected. I find comfort personally. My son had wanted to be bar mitzvahed, so we, that was the first time I started going to temple at all. And um, I found it comforting to look back the thousands of years ago that humans, people, wrestled with some of the same dilemmas we face today and, and how to do service for one another, how to respect one another, and how to deal with life's traumas. I'd say my grandmother, her religion was the Yankees. (laughs) (laughs) How will your family be honoring the anniversary tomorrow? My niece, Jody, has 
been very active. She's actually on the board of the Flight 93 Museum, and she has been launching their new heroes campaign where people nominate local community heroes and honor them and put a focus on people who are actually being heroic at this point in time. And certainly know we need people doing that who've been stepping up in their communities in so many different ways. Her brother has started his own uh, website called tryheirloom.com. What the site is doing is helping people make their own family remembrance videos to, to capture and interview their family's stories. After my mom was diagnosed with cancer in 2017, we came to the realization that we had almost no video of her from the last two decades. Plenty of photos, but nothing that captured her essence in a more meaningful way. So we decided to change that. Together, we sat down to record a series of her best stories. And while we knew we'd come to cherish these recordings in the future, we had no idea how meaningful those exchanges would be as they unfolded. He said that that's the moment when he fell in love with me. It was like a fairy tale. We closed the event down that first night we were dancing and just didn't want to leave he was a great dancer horrible dancer horrible <laughs> horrible dancer and he didn't I think that's where I get her from maybe <laughs> we laughed at her best stories but we also learned new things about my mom's life I think that was perfect What will you be doing tomorrow? <laughs> it's going to be very quiet, hopefully restorative. I may watch some of the Flight 93 uh, commemorations online. I, I had wished to be able to go down uh, with my uh, brother's family and other family to those events there, but that, that wasn't possible for us this year. On September 11th, families and community leaders gathered at the Flight 93 National Park Memorial. It was a solemn ceremony that began with patriotic songs, speeches, and some familiar rituals, the tolling of the bells. As they rang, loved ones stepped up to the microphone to say the names of all those who perished on that flight. Wanda Anita Green. Tens of thousands stream the ceremony online, including Terry, who watched Charlie Freeman say her brother's name. My dad, Donald Freeman Green. We continue my conversation with Terry Green, a volunteer organizer and a project director for the September 11th Families for Peaceful Tomorrows. When we return, Terry shares why so many family members refuse to stay silent and why one member is focused on ensuring that her father's memory is not used to justify torture. 
Stay with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan, and this week, we continue our special series reflecting on the two decades since 9-11. In our first installment of this series, we took a closer look at our founding story with my predecessor, Maureen Fiedler. She described how 9-11 led her and early supporters to start Interfaith Voices. In this week's installment, we take a closer look at a movement that grew out of a concern. The need to amplify the voices and stories of relatives of those who died on September 11th, who were increasingly disturbed at how their loss was being manipulated to justify war. I did feel when there was the drumbeat of war happening that that wasn't the response that in my perception and in my heart wasn't what would help the world, make the world a better place. And it wasn't You know, the words back then, there was a lot of words used. We really want to avenge the death of these people. It's like, well, these people is my dad. And that act of war is not going to make me feel better. I don't believe it's going to help my family. It's not going to bring my dad back. It's only potentially going to have another son in some other country lose their father or vice versa, have a father lose their son. Um, And so I was very grateful when I saw members of this fledgling organization back then have a walk for peace and use their voice as a family member to say, not in my name, this is not serving me. It's like, that's what I feel. And, And some of our members actually went to Afghanistan very early on after the invasion to find what usually people discover and what is known about war that 90, I don't know the stat, but 90 plus percent of 
the casualties of war are civilian. It's, it's not, you know, how do you from a plane with a bomb specifically know, okay, right there is that specific person we're looking for. It's just, you know, war is messy. And, and as we now know, 20 years later, the ripples of what, uh, even our retaliation continue. That was Antonio Aversano. He's an active member in the September 11th Families for Peaceful Tomorrows Network. Earlier this month, he was talking with radio host Mark Donnell on the Mohawk Radio Network just a few days before the 20th anniversary. At the time of the attacks, Antonio was living in Santa Cruz, California, where he got the call about his dad, who was working at the time on the top floor of the World Trade Center. Remembering that day, he describes how the tragedy pushed him in some unexpected directions. I was traumatized. I was, of course, sad with my family for this tragedy in the world, for all of this loss. But personally, I went into a more contemplative place of wanting to understand and recognizing the simple truth that hurt people hurt people, and healed people heal people. Once he found the network of families working on different campaigns, Antonio got more involved. At the fifth anniversary of 9-11, he attended an international conference and gathering of families like his. From other countries, they gathered in one place, sharing stories, exploring how they can use their voices to promote peace and justice. The relationships he formed also deepened his interest in indigenous wisdoms and rituals, and he began a more contemplative spiritual practice. Aversano describes this and so much more in a self-published book, Tragedy to Transformation, A Son's Lessons from 9-11. Terry Freeman, the project director of the September 11th Families for Peaceful Tomorrows, shared Antonio's story with us. She is eager for more family members to share their experiences, their journeys, a storytelling practice she believes is important in recasting the narrative about the 9-11 families. But recasting a narrative of heroes and villains can be challenging. As we return now to my conversation with Terry, we start with her reflections on how she and other families in the organization find support during these difficult milestone anniversaries. Many of the 9-11 members, family members that I've come to get to know, as Loretta Filipoff says, the best friends I never wanted to meet, Mm. at least not that way. We really are appreciative of all the tributes and accolades to our family members, remembrances. We thought they were heroes in our family, not because of 9-11, but because of who they were. But we also, you know, are painfully reminded of the hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians uh, that you know, many of them widows, uh, uh, women and children in the wars, Afghanistan and Iraq, who have died in large part because of our choices of how to respond, which we don't believe was an effective response. We are cognizant of the soldiers 
many young now who exceed the casualties of 9-11 and who even in more numbers, I believe it's around 30,000 now, have committed suicide. We really want to be asking these deep questions about how do we actually get to a place of peaceful tomorrows? Terry, with the fourth surge of the COVID-19 pandemic underway, I understand this year the group organized a virtual Peace and Justice Film Festival, which offered viewers access to a mix of films from documentaries to fictionalized dramas. How did you choose these films and who put this together? Yeah, well, my son Ari uh, just turned 26. He's a Northwestern film graduate. And so he actually produced the festival for us and watched all sorts of films to come up with the list. There were a few we couldn't identify and get rights to, but so many of the filmmakers were very generous and both giving us access and joining in the panel discussion. When the movie was finished, I told them about it. Many people would say, oh, it's too upsetting. I I don't want to say anything about 9-11, about September 11th. And I said, there are no shots of planes crashing into buildings. There's nothing gory. It's, It's sending a different kind of message. And many people told me after that they were impressed by the fact that the way you framed it and your writing, you know, um, it was more of a human story that grew out of this catastrophic event. Talking about death, talking about pain, you know, children being killed in drone strikes, stuff like that. Who wants to talk about that? It's depressing. Well, you know, some of us feel we do need to talk about that sometimes because it's real, it's happening. And I believe that if somebody is hurt unjustly in the world, it affects all of us. The excerpt of the panel discussion we just heard took place after the screening of In Our Son's Name. Uh, Just for listeners, we just heard Ari talking with Phyllis and Julia Rodriguez about the reaction they encountered uh, when they were making the documentary. One thing that really struck me was that what Julia said at the end, Julia, we should say, was born after her older brother Greg died in the World Trade Center on 9-11. So she has no memory of the attacks. But she does speak to her observation that there's a discomfort talking about the uncomfortable and painful realities of war. Facilitating conversations is challenging, especially for educators, which I understand is one of your ongoing objectives. How are you doing that? How are you going to be working with educators? Ari and others created educational guides for teachers on the films. So the live panels are wonderful, and we will have those available on our website, peacefultomorrows.org, for teachers to be able to access. As Ari points out, he was young at the time of 9-11, and he has memories because it was very powerful for him, and his relationship with Donnie was so strong. But many of people his age really don't remember much about 9-11, if at all, and certainly younger than him. 
don't have that direct experience. So we really wanted to make sure that people are able to do the deep reflection about the meaning of 9-11, not just, you know, on a superficial level of, of just ceremonies, but probing into factors before it happened, choices afterwards. People often assume, and I think it was been promoted, that those who are 9-11 family members seek revenge, but neither he nor our family wanted that, especially not by hurting other people who will lose their loved ones just like us. We do want to educate that generation and also make sure it's really clear that our grief is not a cry for war or attacks against others who practice Islam or people of any religion or nationality. Do you feel like that message that you all are putting out into the world to reflect, to ask some of these deeper questions, do you feel like we've done that as a nation, as a society? Well, no, (laughs) although... It's a complicated answer in a way, because I think there are a lot more who feel like we do, even though that's not typically thought of the reaction. There are a lot of people who actually share our beliefs. We gathered people from 17 countries, from Rwanda, Sudan, Colombia, Russia, Madrid, Spain, Israel and Palestine, Afghanistan, South Africa, paramilitary and guerrillas who all shared our mission of turning grief into action for peace. And I remember Father Rumain Rurangarwa, when we first met, talking about losing 13 family members who were slaughtered in the Rwandan genocide, basically by neighbors who they had grown up with. And he thought about revenge, but he would, when he was hiding himself, he'd be looking up at the stars and thinking of his family and the stories about the stars they would tell him. And he just felt he wasn't doing a tribute to them and their memory if he went the course of vengeance. I understand you chose films for the festival that illustrate this. Is there one that comes to mind? One of our films, We Are Many, chronicles how the protests against going to war in Afghanistan were actually the largest the world has ever seen with tens of millions of protesters across the globe. It's just not the narrative we hear often in the media. We feel alone in, in wondering, well, really, do we? does this really get us anywhere to kill another people, person somewhere else, to detain people in indefinite detention and with torture? Can't we find ways to make our society stronger through the rule of law, through justice and human rights, through knowing one another? And thinking of what's transpiring in Afghanistan, there were lovely youth who were peacemakers in Afghanistan who'd grown their entire lives in war, first, you know, with Russia, then the U.S. And they asked, you know, why not friendship instead? It's a very simple question. It sounds very naive, but really that's basically what it comes down to. We can make that choice. How do you respond to somebody who might hear this and 
feel a different set of emotions, that that grief gets turned into pain and a desire to see the state seek retribution. Family members of those lost to violence, whether it's campaigns of genocide or terror attacks, those voices don't often get heard. It's certainly understandable why people's first reactions are anger and and feeling like one can solve something somehow through a big action like aggression and war. I don't totally understand why people think it's naive to think about other ways of resolving conflict, because I think war is something we can't afford and doesn't pan out long term, as we're seeing. When we kill others, it just increases that cycle of violence, as Martin Luther King Jr. and others have warned us about. There are actual studies that show people may feel for a moment, a bit of reprieve around revenge, but it doesn't last long. Mm. And so more the concept of, say, restorative justice or new ways of, of really building true bridges and human relationships and understanding the other brings a lot more comfort over the long run. If I can recall one of the experiences from Adele Welty, one of our members who's featured in the film Finding Our Voices, when she visited Afghanistan. I just find this so telling. She went to the Afghan widows and and soldiers and said, how do your families relax at night? And they said, well, we watch Seinfeld on TV. (laughs) And and then, of course, she talked to the U.S. soldiers and and guess what they were doing at night? So, I'm on 3rd Avenue, minding my own business, and yada, yada, yada. I get a free massage and a facial. What is a sink story? <laughs> I'm surprised you drive a Cadillac. Oh, it's not mine. It's my mother's. Are you close with your parents? Well, they gave birth to me, and yada, yada. Yada what? Yada, yada, yada. <laughs> to be married, uh, we bought the wedding invitations, and uh, yada, yada, yada. I'm still single. <laughs> So what's she doing now? Yada. So speaking of exes, Mm. my old boyfriend came over late last night, and yada, yada, yada. Anyway, I'm really tired today. You know, the other is not so other as we think. And uh, if we take that time to get to know one another and just being open that we don't have to be uh, driven by our fear and by our hate. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. This week, we're talking with Terry Green, project director of the September 11th Families for Peaceful Tomorrows. It's a national network that began when a small group of family members of those killed on 9-11 discovered that they were each sending President Bush and elected leaders the same message. After reading each other's pleas for nonviolent and reasoned responses to the terrorist attacks, they found each other and began to network and organize. 20 years later, the group includes more than 200 family members, including several from the next generation, those too young to remember the attacks, like Terry's son, Ari, who organized this year's Peace and Justice Film Festival. 
Let's get back to the conversation. When you think about Ari and you think about how he is engaged in this work, what's something that you observe? What change or transformation do you see happening in your son? From such a young age, from the 10th commemoration, he wrote his own essays, we don't prompt him, about uh, reflecting on the pain, kind of horror of how some people have used our losses to foment the death of others. This whole generation has such a, a good grasp of what they call intersectionality of issues of understanding how we have to dig deep into root causes of what may be leading to different injustices and inequities, but also the promise of what can be done when we fully embrace all of our differences. So I see him certainly doing that. I'm so glad he did this festival. When he got to talk to people, he facilitated, moderated the panel with first responder John Field from the Feel Good Foundation. Many know of his work getting compensation with his fellow first responders to their 9-11 related injuries and for their surviving family members. Those chances to make people-to-people connections, to share the loss, to share the grief, to share some of the outrage, but also positivity of hope where we could go if we work together, if we come together, if we really use that insight and our experience towards something that does a social good. There's a lot of healing in that. Can you just share a couple of memorable moments from the last few nights that mention the movie and perhaps um, an exchange that you observed or participated in from the panel? Oh, absolutely. One of our founding members, Phyllis Rodriguez, she and her husband, Orlando, were a lot of the impetus in in our 9-11 family members who shared our sentiments finding one another. They wrote a letter they named not in our son's name that was published, and other family members found one another and were connected and joined together to form in back in actually February 2002. And so this film, Not in Our Son's Name, is just beautiful. It's an interfaith family. Uh, Phyllis grew up Jewish. Orlando is a Latinx background, um, Catholic. There, it's a love. It's not painful to watch. I recommend to everybody. It's not just the horrors of 9-11 and losing their son. It's um, about how he was a full person. It's about their love story. It's about how they found restorative justice in visiting with convicted murderers in Sing Sing to try and learn what do what people who commit murder, what are they like? And it really humanized them. And in fact, they stay friends with one of them. Um, and they also even befriended Zacharias Masawi's mother and supported one another through the trials. I think, you know, a really lovely quote by Phyllis and, and Julia in the panel talking about the film was that that they were able to find laughter even at this time of, of deep sorrow. What stands out as some as something you learned? Uh, oh, in the making of the film. 
well, it was fascinating um, being part of the making of a documentary. It is such a complicated process. And I don't know if I could have coordinated all the parts, Gayla, but you did. And this is something that's important and it, it goes to your heart as well it should, as well as to your cerebrum. And, uh, and it was just, um, I, it was one of the most, um, for me, uh, one of the most wonderful experiences of, of making a film. Uh, and also, we really had a good time <laughs> and, 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 and when we could. And, um, so, and we ended up being good friends forever. Mm. Forever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can echo a little bit off that last thing you said is I think one thing I take away from my little more, uh, you know, tangential involvement of the film is to try to have fun, uh, laugh through the tears. (laughs) That's, you know a great thing if you can have some fun when dealing with something tragic. I think that's through the connections and working with a filmmaker who was able to really capture a a nuanced narrative that has so much that brought Greg to life again for them and, and to celebrate him. Where do you get the resources to support this kind of outreach and the development of educational tools, the facilitation of events like this? All of us are volunteers, uh, with the exception of one part-time staff member and one very part-time intern. So we run the operation as volunteer, and we have to create these resources ourselves and on the sly. That is a really good question, how we will continue to do so 20 years later. There was a lot of different foundations at the start of our work, foundations that have generously supported us, you know, are not able to do so indefinitely. And so uh, we were hoping we are gather more donations through our film festival and, and other ways of being creative. One of the, our major expenses is that we send our members to Guantanamo Bay to witness the proceedings because there have been concerns about the transparency of the proceedings. Only limited people can see them. Um, of course, you know, there have been indefinite detentions of detainees for many years without trials and it's only through advocacy that that's been rectified because many people detained were not actually involved in 9-11 or they were with very minor roles and as the film the Mauritanian and Mohamedou Salahi who's who's also on a panel uh, with us about his diary was innocent and detained but also tortured Here's an excerpt from the panel discussion that followed the screening of the Mauritanian. We hear Elizabeth Miller in conversation with Mohamedou Salahi. His experience inspired the movie. Miller is a Peaceful Families member. She's active in observing the Guantanamo Bay hearings and advocating for the fair treatment of detainees 
and the rule of law. How do you guys respond to that negative energy that you receive from some people? Sometimes I don't even involve myself at all because sometimes silence, you know, really speaks volumes. Absolutely. You just pick and choose like what you can handle. Some days I'm like, hey, let's have a conversation. I'd love to tell you about my opinion on this. And it's not necessarily an opinion always. It's more of an educated perspective, I'd like to say. And other days I'm like, you know, thanks for your comment, but I like this is, it's just not appropriate. And it depends on the day and who it is. And for me, I would rather have a conversation so that I could maybe help educate somebody, open their eyes. But sometimes people's eyes are shut and you can't open them. And I think sometimes as hard as it is, because I'm a fixer, um, you have to learn how to let things go. Absolutely. Thank you. So in my case, I found myself (laughs) always defending in a place where I have to defend Americans. So people who harbor these hold these negative views about Americans by a large people who don't know American people. Uh, how many Americans did you meet? I never met American people. How long did you stay in the US? I never visited the United States of America. So how can I answer you when you are so ignorant about American people? American people are generous, peace-loving by and large, and you just like say stuff that you don't know about. So I think if you want to cure yourself from uh, not like an American, just visit American people and talk to them, you know? It's true. And I think it, like what he said, it works for both sides because I think there's a lot of information about Muslims and Arabs around the world. And then you're like, well, have you ever met an individual who practices Islam? And they're like, well, no. And I was raised in a Catholic household and all of the Muslims that I've had the privilege of meeting, I was like, wow, our religious traditions are quite similar. So that just goes to show that until you make those connections, until you take the second to learn about somebody else, to communicate with somebody else, you're misinformed. And it's really hard to speak about someone else or about another group of people when there's a lot of misinformation. So we send 9-11 family members to witness the proceedings. And Elizabeth Miller, who has visited Guantanamo before, she's a child of 9-11, she's uh, planning to return to watch the trials. So those costs of travel to Guantanamo so that we can report back to people, so that we can really try to restore American system of justice Um, and rule of law that was lost after 9-11. We thought we couldn't afford civil trials. We had to use a a new military system that has failed miserably. We haven't seen any convictions (laughs) of people we actually may have been involved, but, but also we've perpetrated injustice instead, instead of showcasing our system of justice. So those are some things we need funds for. We need funds for our one staff member, Uh, We've learned to work without a physical office. So we try to be very thrifty. would like to thank those who have been our sponsors, our funders. I know where I work, uh, which is a public health organization, John Snow, uh, JSI. 
has helped with co-hosting and providing our webinar service for these films. So we have a lot to be grateful for. And of course, individual contributors, including our, our family members themselves. I really appreciate you sharing your story and the evolution of the work that you've been doing and the relationships that you formed, as you said, under circumstances nobody wanted. It sounds like those relationships have enriched your life and given meaning to some of the work that you are dedicating yourself to outside of work. Absolutely. It's it's so true. And it's true in my work in public health, because when you meet the people in the front lines and we see these COVID pandemics and people working within those communities, neighborhoods hardest hit for one another, you know, it, it just fills you up with a sense of meaning and awe. So uh, for me, that's very spiritual and helpful. Terry Green, it has been a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. Terry Freeman is a steering committee member and the project director for the September 11th Families for a Peaceful Tomorrow. She lives with her family in Boston. To find links to the movies featured in the film festival and resources offered by the group, please visit this week's show notes at interfaithradio.org. That's all for this week's installment, Reflecting on 9-11. This week's producer is Kevin McCarthy. A special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, and MC Yogi for our theme music. To learn more about our program, our history, and ways you can support future specials, visit interfaithradio.org. If you missed any portion of this week's episode, fear not. We drop the entire show in our podcast. So you can stream it from your favorite pod service. Just search Interfaith Voices wherever you listen. And while you're there, can I ask you a favor? Leave us a review. It helps others find us. Wherever you are, I hope you are safe. I hope you are well. And I hope you stay connected. I'll see you next week. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. 